I invite you all now to open your Bibles in the book of Esther. We continue today our sermon series on the book of Esther that we started a couple weeks ago and that we plan to finish by the end of summer. We're going to spend our mornings in the book of Esther throughout the summer. And after the dealings with the bureaucrats of the empire in chapter 1, we come now to chapter 2, Esther chapter 2. We're going to read the first 18 verses, not the entire chapter, but most of it. Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Receive this with faith and with love. This is the word of God to you. Thus says the Lord. After these things, when the anger of King Hazarus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen, be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among with the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So... When the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into the into king into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations of, for the woman, women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgas, 
Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came from Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tabith, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Tale as old as time, true as it can be. Barely even friends, then somebody bends unexpectedly. Just a little change, small to say the least, both a little scared, neither one prepared, beauty and the beast. Certain as the sun rising in the east, tale as old as time, song as old as rhyme, beauty and the beast. Those, of course, are the lyrics of Beauty and the Beast the main song of Disney's 1981-91 animated musical film, Beauty and the Beast. Even if you have never seen it, these lyrics give you the gist of a story all too familiar to us. The unexpected romance between the beautiful princess and the threatening beast. At first, they couldn't be more different, but with time, the princess's charm mild manners, and yes, beauty. It, was, it softens the heart of the horrendous pharaoh beast to reveal deep inside a troubled soul that just needed some love and some beauty to reveal an equally handsome prince hidden inside that frightening carapace. And of course, as some of you might know, the Disney movie is an adaptation of a folk French fairy tale that has become the source material for many other films, books, and stories. It is such a prevalent image, this idea that even the most bitter heart can be melted by love and beauty. It has become such a prevalent image that I'm afraid it has been used as a lens through which we read the book of Esther. You pair that with all the too pervasive reading of the Old Testament stories that sometimes reduce characters to the hero of the week model. And what we find here is the tale of the beautiful Disney princess Esther who rose to the throne, charmed even the bestial king Ahasuerus and saved the day they lived happily ever after. Which sounds nice, but 
Is it really true? In light of what we just read just in chapter 2? Is this really a good summary of the book of Esther? Finally, in chapter 2, we are introduced to our protagonist of the book. In this chapter, we see how Esther lived in a pagan empire, found herself in a harem at the mercy of a mercurial dictator, hid her identity as a Jew for no reason apparent, charmed everyone around her by being a people pleaser to gain favor, and lived in a way that probably broke every single law of the Old Testament. This is all before going to the chambers of a Gentile and uncircumcised man without, if that ever happened, marrying him. Esther's life is nothing close to a fairy tale. And her introduction makes that clear from the outset of the book. How should we think of her then? And more closely to us, what does that have to do with our lives this morning? My life is far from a fairy tale as much as Mari and I could fit the description of Beauty and the Beast. But in all seriousness, how can we relate and even learn from the life of a beautiful queen of the earth's most powerful empire? Our lives are definitely not fairy tales. When we look at our current circumstances or our past, we see a mix of rights and wrongs, a series of bad decisions, wrong calls, evil deeds. We ask ourselves, will I ever get this right for once? We come to church, we read God's standard of righteousness, we're confronted by our sin, and we can only wonder, will I ever get to the happily ever after part? As we discussed last week, the book of Esther tells a story of God's silent providence, orchestrating every detail to bring about redemption for his people, including you and me. Today, we begin to see how Queen Esther fits into that narrative and what we can learn from this not-so-Disney-like beautiful princess and her dealings with bestial king Ahasuerus. Today, then, we learn from Esther 2 that God uses even our failures to accomplish his purposes. I'll say that again. God uses even our failures to accomplish his purposes. We'll see that in two points this, this morning. First, wherever you go, that's where you are. You, we'll see that in verses 1 through 11. Wherever you go, that's where you are. After Queen Vashti refused to come into his presence, and after her subsequent banishment from the throne, eventually the headache of King Ahasuerus abated, as we read in verse 1. Having learned nothing from their previous blunders, the imperial cabinet decides to cheer him up while making the same mistakes all over again. 
Their plan is to summon into a hazardous presence women from all over the provinces, making sure they will not look for wise and intelligent women who would know how to behave better than Vashti. In the empire, better simply means young, unmarried, and beautiful. This is the plan, and Ahasuerus, as he often does, simply nods and agrees. And off they go, compelling women to come into the presence of the emperor again. As someone already noticed, so much for my body, my rules. Just as young men were drafted into the imperial army, just as men were recruited to serve as eunuchs, as most of you know what that means, now the young women are being recruited to the imperial harem without the option to resist. If you're in the empire, even your body belongs to the emperor. So, as the DHS, Department of Harem Security, sweeps the empire of Persia's, sweeps the empire in search of Persia's next top virgin, the book finally introduces us to our protagonists, Mordecai and his cousin, Esther. First, we hear briefly about Mordecai, the Jew. Mordecai was a Benjaminite, the tribe from which came King Saul. This will not be on the sermon discussion quiz, but will be important later on in the series. So remember that in the back of your head, Mordecai, King Saul. For now, the author of Esther briefly explains how a Jew like Mordecai ended up living in Susa, the citadel. If you reread verse 6, you will read no less than three times that the ancestors of Mordecai were carried away. They were carried away from Judah together with the other captives who were carried away when King Jeconiah was carried away by the king of Babylon. Mordecai was in exile, and exile was Mordecai's life. In fact, when we match the chronology of the Babylonian exile to the chronology of King Ahasuerus in Persia, we see that it has been more than 100 years since the exile. By this point, while he was a Jew, Mordecai didn't even have a Jewish name. Mordecai means nothing in Hebrew, and is probably just a rendition in Hebrew of Marduk, one of the main Babylonian gods. So yes, he was Mordecai the Jew, but also Mordecai, keeper of Jewish head down as not to get hammered for it in public. And the same tension bears on the life of Mordecai's adoptive daughter, his cousin Esther. Her name also shows us something. Esther, the name, is probably an allusion to the pagan goddess Ishtar. Yet, as the only character in the book to have two names described, she was also known as Hadassah, the Hebrew word for myrtle. And these names show us how Esther lives in two words, worlds, with two names, keeping two plates spinning at the same time, or 
for those who were here last week, piling successfully at least two M&Ms. One day, finally, the Department of Harem Security knocks at their door, and the two worlds collide. Esther, like many of her forefathers, is taken captive. And this should not come as a surprise after she is described in verse 7 as a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. It should not surprise us that she was taken to be one of the king's virgins. And the text does not mention if she resisted or not, like Vashti did. But as we keep reading, resistance against assimilation does not seem to be one of Esther's top priorities. Actually, quite the contrary, Esther thrives in this environment. The empire tells her to go, and she goes, as we read in verse 9. And she quickly gains the favor of the eunuch in charge of her. For his part, Mordecai tells her to keep her Jewishness secret, and she will do it to a fault, as we will see later down on the series. But for now, Esther plays by the rules of the empire. She looks good, and she obeys orders. That's all they want. In return, she's re- she received what the empire had to offer for those who comply. She was promoted, she was favored, and she even won better cosmetics. At this point, we look at Esther, and this is far from a fairy tale, isn't it? Right now, beautiful Queen Esther, Princess Esther, is walking like a Persian and talking like a Persian. You know what that means. So while the phrase, whatever you are, that's where you will be, sounds like an empty tautology, it, is, it pretty much describes Esther. So right now, she's at the heart of the empire. And more than ever, the beautiful princess looks like the beastly emperor going with the wind after the things the empire values. Which I think it's a little bit sad. The sad story of Esther so far highlights profound repercussions of disobedience and sin. You see, Esther found herself in the Ahasuerus harem probably because a young virgin as beautiful as her would be way easier to spot under the nose of the emperor's minions than in a hidden providence far away from province, far away from Susa. If she was, let's say, hypothetically speaking, in the desert, arid deserts of a Judean province, probably she wouldn't be found. So why were Mordecai and Esther doing in Susa to begin with? First, we must remember that this was a consequence of the sins of previous generations who had been exiled at the end of the book of Kings. That exile was not a mere misfortune in geopolitics, but the culmination of God's judgment upon his people who had forsaken him. That's why Jews were exiled. 
But furthermore, and this helps situate our story in the narrative of the Old Testament, it was also Mordecai and Esther's own disobedience that kept them in exile. Because we know from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that the Persian emperor Cyrus, Ahasuerus' grandfather, had granted permission for the Jews to return home in 538 BC. And if you're doing the math, this is 50 years before our story begins. They had 50 years to come back. Why haven't they? Like Esther and Mordecai, many chose to remain in their comfortable surroundings outside the promised land rather than journeying back. In Susa, compared to the provincial backwater of Jerusalem, it is way easier to navigate to the upper echelons of the imperial machine, as both of them soon discovered. They're close to power. But nevertheless, those who engage in the empire's game will inevitably find themselves themselves playing by its rules sooner or later. And this temptation should resonate deeply with us this morning. Esther was never explicitly instructed to renounce her faith. She was merely encouraged to conceal it to avoid potential problems. Are we not likewise faced with the same issue daily? Hiding our faith to secure a tenure at a public university, assimilate into the business environment, gain acceptance among our peers, caving into these pressures and hiding our faith may yield worldly progress, yes, but at what cost to our souls? Fortunately, the story does not end here, and God is not done with Esther and Mordecai yet. We will see that in our second and last point. God is always at work in us and despite us. God is always at work in us and in spite of us. Verses 12 to 18. Finally, after a year of preparation, of immersing herself in oils and perfumes, Esther is ready for her audition with the king. She has been playing her cards carefully, winning favors, succeeding where Vashti failed. And then after reading in verse 15 that she was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her, we are not surprised that she captured Ahasuerus' heart. The emperor was so happy when he found her that he threw a big party because that's what he does. And to top it all, everyone in the provinces got a tax refund. Verse 18 says, Here, surely the better woman than Vashti that, had been, that he had been seeking, a beautiful as, a form, as beautiful as a former queen, but much more compliant. One commentator notes. I know you're probably not thinking about it, but this is where it becomes clear why I haven't chosen hymn number 579 for our liturgy this morning. 
Trinity Hymnal 579. You can check that later after the sermon. It's called Dare to be a Daniel. It urges in its chorus, just so you can have a taste of it, to quote, dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. Thinking back again to the old Sunday school classics, it does not get better than Daniel when we think in situations of exile. Daniel was in a situation very similar to that of Esther. He was in exile. He was tempted to assimilation and despair. And what did Daniel do? He stood up. He faced the consequences. He counted the cost and was willing to die for his faith. Esther is certainly no Daniel. Right now, she is in the world, and she's the queen of it. Yet, when we think about those two, who are we when we compare to them? We all like to think that when push comes to shove, we will dare to be a Daniel. Yet, I'm afraid we're more like Esther at this point than we would like to admit. There are some differences. You see, Daniel was among the first group of exiles to Babylon. Daniel grew up in the promised land through his formative years and went to live in the empire and face its challenges with his like-minded and like-faithed Friends, Esther, for her part, never saw the promised land. She was already born in the empire, and the empire was all that she knew. Like Esther, we too were born east of Eden, far from where we should be, and where we are usually tends to be where we are. At this point, we would hardly tell any of our young women in our congregation to dare to be an Esther. Karen Jobes, the commentator, puts it this way, what message would, would, would a girl like that get? Make yourself as attractive as possible to powerful men? Use your body to advance God's kingdom? The end justify the means. And if your answer to those questions is a resounding no, that's not what we're going to tell our kids, as it should be, then why do you live it like it should be yes? That's what we want to do. Please, the empire and the emperor. Why do you keep accepting the rules of this world and submit yourself to its grueling disciplines to achieve fame, power, and success, or even just ease of conscience? Why do you put yourself through misery and pain? Because you simply want to be like everyone around you is. You want to be a Daniel? But when the empire knocks on the door, you do everything you can to gain its favor. It does not even need to ask you twice. 
You sacrifice your time and your family for your business. You hide the religious association of your family simply because being a Christian is kind of lame nowadays. You follow all the rules of social media because your performance against those rules will determine how good you are according to its standards of righteousness. And then you sleep better at night knowing that you fit in. Friends, sisters and brothers here today, again, I plead you, remember the king that we serve. Because yes, like a hazardous, our God has control over lives, over our bodies, over our all. He goes through all the provinces under his authority, which are all of them calling those that he wants for himself. Yet, he does not go on calling the beautiful and the handsome to use as living dolls for one night in his chambers and then discard them to a harem. That's not what our God does. Our beloved promised husband prince is none other than Jesus Christ, the one who, loved, who has loved his bride, the church, with an everlasting and unfailing love. For her, he gave up his glory to assume the form of a servant, unattractive and unremarkable by any worldly standard. More than a year of perfumes, he endured, endured 30 plus years of suffering and humiliation to finally die a gruesome death at the hands of his enemies so he could rise to a new life and transport us with him from the empire of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son. Why? Why would he do that? Because we are young and beautiful, like Esther? Because we dare to be brave and courageous, like Daniel and his friends? I think you know the answer. And this is the brilliant hope of the gospel for us this morning. We read in Isaiah 53, we, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to its own way. And then we read Esther 2 this morning and realize we have all been assimilating to the empire. We have all despaired when we see its power and our powerlessness before it. Yet out of love, Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And his death and resurrection creates beauty in us, not the other way around. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. As Luther would say in my favorite quote by the German reformer, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. This is the story of Esther. Because God will achieve great things through Esther, as we know, and despite her flaws and sins, he will do that, like he did with Mordecai, Daniel, Daniel, Jacob, Peter, the Jesus denier, Paul, the Jesus persecutor. The love of God does not find, 
but creates that which is pleasing to him. The Bible is not a collection of fairy tales, but the story of Jesus coming down from heaven and seeking ugly, evil sinners to be his bride, bringing them to his kingdom and using them to expand it. Maybe you feel a little bit like Esther today, like a failure, like someone who was meant to be the hero of a fairy tale of happiness and blessing, but, but turned out to be a beast in, this, in disguise. Let me tell you this, this morning, through the sacrifice and the new life we find in Christ that he offers to us freely this morning, you can walk in a manner worthy of him. The blood of Christ and his perfect righteousness covers your sins, your compromises, your wrong decisions, and your idolatries. It covers your lust, your gossip, your greed. It covers even your pride in thinking that you are not an Esther but a Daniel. Your pride of being sure that God uses you because you're so good, how could he not? In Jesus, his death and resurrection, there is hope for you too. It even covers our fears and goes through the fire with us when we are truly indeed like a Daniel. And you suffer the consequences of resisting the assimilation of the powers of the empire. He will be there with us. That's the beauty of the gospel. It is for everyone. For all of us, I can only conclude with the words of Karen Jobs again. Even if we make the wrong decision, whether through innocent blunder or deliberate disobedience, our God is so gracious and omnipotent that he is able to use even that weak link in a chain of events that will perfect his purposes in us and through us. Friends, this morning there is only one appeal to be made to you. A love so amazing as the love we find in Jesus demands your soul, your life, your all. Dare to be his. Let us pray. O Lord our God, have mercy on us all. Take away our sins from us and mercifully kindle us by the fire of your Holy Spirit. Take away, take away from us the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, a heart to love you and adore you, a heart to delight in you, to follow and to enjoy you. While we know not, please teach us. While we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. For the sake of your Son, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and together we say, Amen.